That's a hard question to answer, God is, and it was a trick question. Um, uh, and let me share how it came about. Several times a year, I'm invited to community service groups to go and sit with people. And when, when I go there, uh, I'm always glad I went, but usually it goes something like this. Uh, we eat some food together. We salute the flag. There's some reports that are given. We listen to a speaker. We tell a few jokes. There's a song or two. We review our mission at these community service groups. We take a collection for a worthy cause, and then we leave for the events of the rest of the day. And I, I always enjoy the camaraderie. I enjoy, even though I'm not a so-called member of the club, I enjoy stepping into it. And I realize that in those moments that I'm with that uh, community group, I touch many good people who are living very good lives and they're doing good deeds in our community and around the world and they're raising good families to the best of their uh, to the best of their ability for the last five decades I've spent my Sundays going to church you go geez I didn't start going to church till my late teens and I tried to find ways to avoid church to that time but for the last five decades and of those last five decades, uh, three of them have been me being the primary speaker. But for the last five decades, I've been going to church. And when I go to church, there's some people that I look forward to, to uh, speaking to and getting time with. We sing a few songs. We hear what's going on in the group. We listen to a biblical message, and we talk to some more people probably before we go out, and then we go home. Now, in some ways, these sound somewhat similar. But there's something different about church when compared to community groups or educational groups or sporting events that we might go to. There's something different. And here it is. If you are in the church, that church should be responsible to be putting God in the middle of the life of everybody who comes. And if you are in the church... You need to know that there's very few other things going on in your life where God is being put in the middle of what your life is all about. The educational groups probably aren't allowed to do it unless you do homeschooling. The community groups, they might have a prayer. The sporting groups, well, we have some teams here that don't have a prayer, don't we? So, uh, <clears throat> uh it just isn't considered part of it. And that's why I want you to know that it is about coming to church or about if you meet in a small group or if you find yourself in personal study of God's word, that that is where God gets into the middle of your life. And when he gets into the middle of your life, you're going beyond your life and you're going beyond the, the worries of the lives of others. You're giving much more t uh, attention to things that are spiritual, to things that are transcendent that you'll get anywhere else. So in my next eight messages, I want to share with you what I call foundations. And before we discuss any fine points of Christian faith or beliefs, we need to center on the foundations of why do we do this anyway. I want you to know that I consider these foundations, at least for my life, they make believing in Jesus and following Jesus not just rational. 
But God has used them in my life to make following Jesus compelling. I can't say no. Well, I can. Sometimes I do. But I always get back to, I can't say no. In each of these passages, God has touched my mind and my heart and my whole purpose for living. And in each of the seasons where I have wrestled with these passages, I have found God to be more real and his call on my life more clear. So foundations. And when you answer that question, God is, you might say, God is amazing or or God is faithful or God is gracious. But really, you can put a period right there. God is. Period. Or exclamation point. God is. In fact, do you realize that when he introduces himself to Moses, that is the exact word he uses. He uses the word translated that says, I am. It means that at that moment, he's going beyond all the other gods of the day, gods that humans have invented, and he's going beyond the human experience into the realm of the spiritual and the supernatural. When God calls himself Yahweh, he is calling himself independent, self-existent, the one who is behind and the cause for all that is. He is the creator and everything else is his creation. He is the Lord and everything and everyone else is designed to be in service to him. Now, when I say that in service to him, there's a few of you here that are already ticked off. What do you mean? That's not why I'm on this planet. What do you mean that my main purpose is to be in service for him? Well, that is what we're getting at. And I want to read this passage to you, this foundational passage for my life, that begins in Isaiah chapter 55. I want you to know that uh, just about every Sunday when I am teaching, there is an outline that you can get at the door, okay? And it's on a little table. And that will give you the outline that we're about to go through, if perhaps you can't read up here, okay? But it gives you something to write on. Secondly, there's a going deeper section in which I will give further examples. If you might be thinking, oh, that's just what Jim says. What does he know? You're not the first person to say that, okay? But I give you more biblical examples of the same concept on the back page. So those are available to you. Now, uh, 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 before we talk about who God is, we want to go to this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 55, and understand that it is God speaking through Isaiah, giving an invitation to all of humanity. You know, ho, everyone who thirsts, let them come. Everyone who's hungry, let them come. Get something that's free from me. But in the midst of that, when he's giving this invitation, he says there has to be a change in humanity to be able to receive that uh, invitation. And so he says in verse 6, this foundational passage of my life, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Now some of us are saying, well, he's not talking about me because I'm not evil and I'm not wicked. So he must be talking about all the bad people in the world for which I do not qualify. 
hey, I just want you to know that when he's using these words, and that maybe it sounds a bit harsh, a bit harsh, he uses the word wicked and unrighteous. And what he's getting at is it's not that there's no good in you. It's that compared to him, there's not that much good in you. Let me, let me explain. We just finished watching the Olympics. We saw some wonderful athletes do some wonderful things. But we also had a look at some, some very good athletes, some dedicated athletes, some awarded athletes who did a wicked thing. They lied to the police and then they lied to the press and they finally got caught in their lies. Wow. They had finished their events, they had won their medals, and then they decided, since we don't have anything to do, let's get drunk, partying, and we'll fudge on some of the details of what really happened, because the details make us look bad. Here's another example. A news anchor tells a story about him being in danger while he was flying over Afghanistan. That was highly exaggerated. And over the years, the story gets bigger and bigger and bigger until... Uh, he looks like a real hero. But the problem is, is those who were with him finally reported it never happened that way. The news anchor is disgraced and demoted. Let's give another example. Both candidates, the main candidates running for president of the United States, have been accused by the other side of bad judgment, lying, manipulation, uh, power-hungry, and unqualified to be elected as president of the United States. So says the other side, this person isn't good enough. I am. Now, these are well-known people that we want to believe. And yet we find out we cannot believe them. And then there's someone not nearly known as well as these people, me. In my lifetime, I have said things to make me look better than I am. Or, put it another way, I've said some things to make me not look as bad as I am. In my life, things, in my lifetime, I've done things of which I could never be proud and never want to be brought up again. I have fallen short of my own standard, not to mention God's perfect standard. God's perfect standard of righteousness, I have fallen short in my thoughts, in my motives, and in my actions. Um, I don't, you know, I, I can identify with Pope Francis. Like Pope Francis, I am a sinner. And if you can't, after all these explanations, say you're in a sinner, then your actual address is in the 51st state of the United States of America, the state of denial. We are all sinners when we understand what man is. Not that humanity hasn't done some great stuff. Not that humanity hasn't made some great achievements over the eons of of our existence. But humanity is wicked and unrighteous and needs God's forgiveness. I have sought God's forgiveness and I've been promised that it's been given me. Now, the idea here is that compared to God, man is different And God is different than man. Even though we are his creation and made in his image, we often think that we are making him in our image. And he wants us to know, no, we are not the same. And we are, this passage describes God as different than us in at least two main ways. And according to what he speaks through Isaiah, the first is that our thoughts 
are different than God's thoughts. Now, I spend a lot of my life taking care of me. And lately, because of health issues going on in my life, the, uh, the part of taking care of me in my life has only increased. I've been given instructions by more medical professionals than I can remember. I have been told how to eat, how to exercise, how, you know, what medications to take, how to recover. I've been told which, which is the next, next expert that I get to make an appointment with. I've been told how to begin to retie my shoes. I thought I knew that from, from the age of six. I, I've, I've been introduced to slip-ons. They're wonderful, okay? Uh, but I just keep on seeing, it's like playing tag team in wrestling where, you know, I, I finish with one and then it's time to tag another. And the, the problem with all of this is it seems to be becoming even uh, more demanding that I take care of myself, that I take care of Jim, who I'm trying to say is not number one. I have attempted to listen carefully to everything that they say and do. But part of the result is that I'm fixated on taking care of me. And when I get lazy and stop taking care of me, I married someone who reminds me how to take care of me. And if I don't take care of me, she will, and I don't want that. My thoughts are often fixated on me so that I don't know God's thoughts. I'm self-centered. Jesus put it very well. He's teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he wants to reveal God's thoughts for humanity. And in this section, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Uh, the thoughts of God for us are both amazing and devastating. And there's this formula that Jesus has all the way throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins this way. He starts with human conventional wisdom. And we use this all the time. We use it in sports. We use it in finances. You know, what most people do is this, and it usually works. And so Jesus begins many of these sections on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, you have heard it said. In fact, this is even a proverb you repeat. You've heard it said that, and you can finish the sentence. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. You've heard it said, and it goes on and on, section after section after section. What he's telling us is that there are ways in which humans... Good humans, uh, they have this way of saying, if you live life this way, you are living a morally good life. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Because then Jesus adds God's thoughts. And so he says, after beginning that section, he finishes it by saying, but I tell you. And he goes on to say, these are God's thoughts, not just human thoughts for you. So, you know, you, you, you know, you, the way you're supposed to treat your brother and forgive yourself and, and forgive your brother and the fact that you're not supposed to murder. But then he says, I tell you this, you call your brother a fool and you've just committed murder. You can take a marker and just cross that out. That's God's thoughts, though. And they are, you might say, deeper, higher, more demanding than anything we have ever imagined for ourselves. 
God's thoughts, when compared to the thoughts of man, without God, change everything. You, you, we have a choice. We either have God's thoughts with God's in them, or man's thoughts with God's out of them. That, that's the first thing. The, the second thing that he brings up is it's not just God's thoughts, but also God's ways. Because he says in Isaiah 55, that next part of that verse, verse 8, says, Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. When he's talking about that, he's talking about the methods that God will often use. Well, what do we mean by that? His ways are his methods. By nature, I find a way that works, and I continue to use that way until someone can show me something that's a better way. That's called, in human, stand, in, in, in human words, improved productivity. And man is very good at improving productivity over the eons of our existence. But God has something else in mind than just our productivity. Let me share some examples. Get ready. Okay? There's four or five of them here. Uh, Jesus heals nine blind people in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God's ways are never the same twice. He uses a different method every time. Why, God? Why do you use this? Why, why don't you? If it worked once, do it again. Why do you have to do, you know, get creative? Gideon, in the book of Judges, he wants to expel uh, these invaders. He raises up an army as a judge of 32,000 warriors. And God tells him that's far too many. You don't need 32,000. So he, he, God tells Gideon, tell all of those who are afraid to go home. So if you're afraid, just go home. You don't have to fight this battle. Suddenly now he's left with a, with a team or an army of 10,000. He's, he's cut it by two-thirds. God says, well, that's still way too many. So I want you to go to a stream and I want you to look at how people drink water. Some got down on their knees and lapped like a dog. They got sent home. Some bent over and cupped it with their hands and drank it that way and they were asked to stay. That tells you how good a warrior you are? God, what are you doing? He has cut... His forces now down to 300. That is a 93% reduction in his forces. And then God says, now go beat the opposing army. God's ways are different. You know why he said go oppose the different army? Because if you, you know, if you went out with 32,000, you'd think you won the victory and I had nothing to do with it. You'd think it was your great strategy, your great leadership, your well-trained warriors. Here's another one. Moses, he leads the Hebrews into the wilderness. And then he purposely puts them in a position with the Egyptian army on one side of them and the Red Sea on the other. I would call that a tight spot. And the Hebrews, I love Hebrew humor. I love it. The Hebrews come to him and they say, "Was was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us here to die? That's a great line. You get the sarcasm. But Moses' answer says, Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Lord will do this. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. So that you will know this is the Lord at work. 
Overnight, a strong wind causes the Red Sea to open. Moses could not do that. The Hebrews could not do that. Only God could do it. But it was one of God's ways that God uses only once to show us that his ways are not our ways. Here's another. Jesus comes and he performs at the very beginning of his ministry a couple of miracles. The very next morning, people have come from everywhere so they can get healed too. Word spreads quickly when healing's going on. So his disciples, they foresee, you know what? This city right here at Capernaum is going to be like a magnet city. This will be our headquarters. And everyone who's sick, if they can get here, they can come here and we will heal them. But Jesus goes out to pray. And as Jesus is praying, and then his disciples find him later in the morning, he tells them that, no, that is the conventional way, but that's not God's way. God's way is for Jesus to make house calls, not to build a hospital. And so Jesus says, I'll be going from village to village to village. Who does house calls? But here's the kicker. And very important for our political season that we're in. When Jesus' disciples are eager for promotion and status and cabinet positions in his kingdom... Uh, we, we, we see it's very similar to people hanging around presidential candidates today and, and, and speaking for their candidate. Uh, Jesus turns to these ambitious dreamers called his disciples and he declares that they got his mission all wrong. And here's what he said. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. There's a different measuring stick that Jesus used. Man's ways are to make a name for man's self. Man's ways are to see how popular you are by how many votes you get. Man's ways are to measure the number of promotions and keep track of them that you will receive. Man's ways to show how important you are is to look at the number of figures on your paychecks. Man's ways are to say, what parties did I get invited to? God's ways is asking you to what degree did you serve, no matter if anybody saw you or not. It's not just that God's ways and God's methods and God's thoughts are different than ours. This is what it says in verse 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher, meaning better. Of greater value than your, than, uh, my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So it's not just that they're different, but they're higher, better, and of greater value. Friends, do you believe that? Is there any evidence in you displaying God's ways and God's thoughts rather than just the conventional ways and thoughts? Would your children accuse you of thinking God's thoughts? And doing things God's ways. Um, <clears throat> some of you have come to me at certain times and said, I, I really wouldn't want your job, Jim. I think it's the hardest job in the world. What I'm about to reveal to you means it's the easiest job in the world. 
You ready? Okay. At the end of this passage, God shares the way that he uses for people in the ministry. No, people who do ministry, not in the ministry. People who do ministry. That he uses what we say, no matter how good we say it or how poorly we say it. He tells Isaiah at this great moment of invitation to all of Israel and to really to the whole world, come and take part of me. He tells Isaiah that his main job as a prophet is simply to say what God says and nothing more, nothing less. Now, I, Isaiah is a prophet. He never went to seminary. Okay? Never got a graduate degree. Never did doctoral studies. You know I've done all that. Okay. So his job is simply to listen to God and to speak directly what God has told him. I'm a pastor. So I spend a lot of time reading the Bible. And I ask three questions every time I read the Bible. I ask, what does it say? What does it mean? And what do I do about it? What does it say? What does it mean? What do I do about it? Now, when it's me, when I'm asking, what does it say? I have the privilege of using a, an original language or two. That's great. So I'll get out my Greek. I'd like to get out my Hebrew, but it's useless. But I'll get out my Greek, and I'll read it. And I'll try to come up with what that passage actually means. Then when it goes beyond the original languages or, or reading it in, in several different translations, then I have to say, okay, that's what it says. Now, what does that mean? And then that's where you read other people like commentaries or, or, or you listen to other people's messages or what they've written. And even though good scholars do not always agree, most of the time the better scholars agree exactly what the passage means. And then when I've determined, you know, what does it mean, then I ask, well, how do I live this in my life in, in the days ahead so I can be a living example and encourage you to do it in the same way, or in, in, at least in some way? And then as I work on that, I also have to work, okay, Lord, I know what it says. I know what it means. How do I communicate it in a motivating way that will help people be a sense of urging that you've that you've used me to speak to them, and then you read Isaiah, and then you read what he says. Let me read verse eleven, the very end of this passage. So he's talking about, you know, I've made this invitation to you. You're told to, you know, to sort of forego your ways, then then after that, I want you to know that my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. But when I give you my thoughts, he says, they're going to do something in you. When you hear God's thoughts, they're going to have an effect. And here's what he says. So is my, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So here I am, I spend really a lot of time working on what will people identify with to understand this concept. What stories can I tell to help explain what I want them to understand? What visual can I give that will bring light 
to, to what I'm trying to say. What can I do to keep your attention so you're not looking at the deer feeding right outside this window this morning? Gotcha. It's so hard. Attention span is eight seconds for the American human being. Eight seconds. So I, I go through this and I work very hard on it. And I, and I pray, Lord, help me to communicate effectively. And here's what God says. You know, Jim, it's more about me than it is about you. Now, don't go out and do a bad job. But it's more about me than it is about you. This is more about the transcendent of how I get to a soul while you're still trying to get to a head. Jim, this is not so much about me as you think it is. This is all about me and less and less about you. Several times a year, it's after a message and someone comes up and they say to me, you know, Jim, you just said this so well. And I got it and it was wonderful. And then they repeat what I said and I smile and I say, oh, you know, praise the Lord. I never said it. It wasn't there. I listened to my message. It wasn't there. God went around me to get to you. Now, I love it when, you know, hey, point number three was right on for my life, all right? But understand that sometimes God avoids me. But he gets to you. And we were all here together. What he's saying is that that often though that God works through me every time he wants you to know that he's at work and when he speaks his word it does not return empty it accomplishes its purpose so here's the idea what is God telling you today this is Jeopardy you just answer that question right now I won't say a word I hope it's something I said, but if not, maybe it's something God said. Okay. What is God saying to you today? Do you want his ways that are different and higher? Do you want more of him in your life and less of man determining how your life is going to be lived? Because God does not think or work like his fallen creation. And here's three things that will be different. First, understand that God is not a man. Most religions have invented God. And he looks a lot like man. We are told that God has made us in his image, but we're not that much like him. And we are fallen creatures. So there's this great passage that Moses tells us in, in, in the book of Numbers. In Numbers 23, 19. And it's given by a pagan prophet to a, to, to a pagan king. And the, the king has hired the prophet to curse Israel. And he says, I can't. I can't. God won't let me. This Yahweh, God won't let me. And he gives this. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he not speak, God? Does he not speak and then not act? Does he not promise and not fulfill? You see, like... Or you might say, unlike each of us, there's two things different about God that are higher and different. He's truthful. And he's faithful. The second thing about God is we use that word sovereign or almighty. 
It means his will and his power to accomplish what he promises he will do. He is the Lord of the universe and the ultimate Lord to whom each of us will bow at the end of our lives. And we will acknowledge who he is. So not only are his thoughts and his ways different and higher than ours, his thoughts and his ways are more effective because his power is behind them. And God is in his ways and his thoughts. And finally, God has a plan. That means he puts together his godliness, his deity, his great power and his will. And he has a plan for his creation, but also for each each human who has ever lived and whoever will live and who is living now. And his plan is different than the plans that leave him out. The plans that put God in are different than the plans that take him out. You put God into a marriage and a family. And a marriage and family is different because God's in the middle of it. You put God into the, the philosophy and the, and the uh, explanation and the, and the application of the value of human life. And it's different because God's in the middle of it. And he's the creator of that human life. You put God in the middle of the way he blesses us with our wealth versus taking him out of what we're to do with our wealth. And you're going to find you have a higher purpose for those who have been blessed with wealth. Because you understand you've been blessed. And and, and so it goes on. Every part of our lives is different when we understand God's thoughts and God's ways. When they're put into the middle of our lives, our lives turn out different. Have have you seen those commercials? It's Peyton. Peyton on Sunday morning. (laughs) They're the best commercials of the year. I love them. Do you know what they're advertising? I've never quite got that, okay? But I love it that Peyton is suddenly, you know, he's retired, but, but at least, you know, he's still doing something that seems to be valuable. Um, so I love those commercials because they are funny. But here is Peyton. He's retired for the first time in decades. He's home or he's shopping on Sunday mornings instead of playing football. He's dressed in a ratty bathrobe and pajamas, and he has nothing to do. He calls his brother Eli. Eli says, Peyton, I'm playing football today. I can't come and have nachos with you. Oh, that's right. I'll pencil you in for Tuesday. Or he's there at the supermarket and he, you know, he's shopping and, and as he, as he gets to the checkout line, the, the, the cashier at the register treats him like anybody else. And so finally Peyton reaches into his robe and says, Oh, I got a coupon for that. Look. He's not famous anymore, or not as famous. But Peyton, think of this. You have tons of money. You still are famous, and people know you when they see you. You're very likable. And I'm sure the offers are pouring in as to what's next. He appears at the the Bronco game on Thursday night, and he's asked, what's next for you? And he goes, I don't know. I'm going to take some time to think about it. And he refuses to commit. What's next, Peyton? Though your playing days are over, are, are, are over, it's only half time of your life. He's just 40. I'd love to be 40 again. <laughs> He's only 40. And yet he won't be playing football. Peyton, 
If you call me this week, I'll tell you. Peyton, go to church. Go to church where you're hearing God's ways and God's thoughts for your life. So you plan it with him. Peyton, I'm not done yet. Peyton, get in a group where you're helping other people work through God's ways and God's thoughts for their lives. Peyton, you used to go to church as a child before you started playing football. Take that Bible and just read it for yourself. It's filled with God's ways and God's thoughts for you. Peyton, God has a plan. God has people. God has gatherings for you where you can be involved with understanding that when you put God into your ways and into your thoughts, your life will be exceptional. Let's pray. Lord, we're only teasing, Peyton. And yes, I have prayed for him. But really, I'm praying for me and for others. Foundation to our faith is that we just can't be human anymore. And that following Jesus Christ is compelling because it changes our thoughts and our ways into your thoughts and your ways. And we're simply asking, Father, but this is exactly what you'd be doing in each of us. This great transformational process of going deeper with you and understanding you better so that we are gathering and really a renewing and a transformation of the mind and the heart and the actions of our lives to be reflecting more of you in the middle of our lives and not throwing you out. Lord, We want you there. We might say on the throne of our hearts where you have the proper place of ruling our lives and filling us with your thoughts and ways. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.